Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great pleasure to be invited here to um, talk on the occasion of this exhibition of the Charles Halliday manuscripts on a subject in which I've been interested for some years. As Siobhan has said, the gift or beneficence of uh, Charles Halliday is being commemorated in this um, exhibition. And among the items on display are some connected to the Guild of St. Anne. They're in the uh, case here at the top um, on the right-hand side as, as I look at it. And these items uh, include uh, three deeds, uh, property deeds written on vellum relating to lands and houses in Dublin city and suburbs and dating from the 13th and 14th centuries. They have attached to them the uh, magnificent seal of the Guild of St. Anne, which shows uh, the figure of St. Anne and her daughter, the Virgin Mary. The other item on display is um, a 17th century minute book of the Guild that contains a record of requests for charitable donations from poor petitioners and decisions taken on foot of these petitions. I think the choice of display items neatly sums up the history of this long-lived Dublin institution. The Guild, or fraternity, and I use the terms interchangeably, of St. Anne, evolved as a corporation based in the parish of St. Audwin that attracted substantial grants of lands and houses from members, the rental income from which was applied to their own spiritual benefit and also the charitable relief of others. The St. Anne's manuscripts form an important part of the generous benefaction of Charles Halliday to the Royal Irish Academy. And it's this that's being commemorated in the current exhibition. The St. Anne's collection comprises several hundred items, including deeds, wills, accounts, minute books, and legal submissions covering a period of over six centuries. Supplementary to this rich repository in the Academy is a collection of transcripts of documents and deeds from the history of the Guild in the Gilbert Collection in Dublin City Archives in Peer Street. Some of the records have been calendared uh, with a historical introduction by Henry F. Berry in the Academy's Proceedings of, of 1904, but most of the documents remain unpublished. The Library of the Academy has in progress an important digitization project which will eventually allow for open access to the manuscripts. Meanwhile, my lecture today will contextualize the individual guild documents on display by explaining the significance of a well-documented and vibrant institution of Dublin civic life whose existence spans several centuries. I think the careful preservation of so many documents of St. Anne's Guild was due in large part to the many legal challenges to its existence that it faced, particularly after the Reformation. I hope to show how the Guild was resilient and adaptable in the face of these threats, its survival through various religious and political upheavals being due to its integral place in the social, economic and cultural life of late medieval and early modern Dublin. 
although dozens of the property deeds date from the period before the Guild of St. Anne was formally established by charter in 1430, they all relate to the portfolio of real estate that came into its possession to sustain its mission. Thus, it's possible to trace the ownership or leasing of individual houses or lands over several generations. In addition, there is valuable evidence of the um, geographical location of guild properties within and without the city walls. And uh, here, just uh, after looking at the guild uh, seal, we have part of the map of Speed, uh, John Speed of 1610, showing an area in the west of the city uh, around St. Audwin's Church, where many of the properties were clustered over the centuries. Uh, these include Cook Street, High Street, Wine Tavern Street, and the Newgate area. There were also a number of premises outside the walls in the county of Dublin, including Kilmainham and Crumlin, and also Swords. Moreover, there's a wealth of topographical information about the city as attested by the use of the guild records in the Academy's Historic Towns Atlas of Dublin, Part 1 uh, to 1610 by Howard Clark, and in my own Dublin Part 2, which was mentioned, 1610 to 1756. Most of the deeds give very precise dimensions for the premises referred to, and also their location in terms of neighbouring property and other landmarks. Thus, for example, in one of the deeds on display, William Le Marichal granted to William Le Walsh a messuage in Cook Street, situated in breadth between the messuage of Adam Dundun to the east and the messuage of John de Manus to the west, and in length extending from the highway to the south to the watercourse called Coleman's Brook in the north. So you can see there's a great deal of, of uh, rich detail, uh, even, even in, in just an individual deed, um, as well as helping to build up the pro profile of land ownership, the association of families, trades and gender with individual guild properties sheds light on the social history of the city in the late Middle Ages. From the later 14th century onwards, a significant number of the property transactions in the deeds involve chaplains as beneficiaries or grantors of property. These clerics, supernumerary to the parochial clergy, were not usually referred to as being affiliated to parishes, but I think it's safe to assume that many of them served as chantry chapels in St. Audouin's, such as the Lady Chapel, and in many other city churches. While few of these 14th century documents make specific mention of pious intentions associated with the rents, such as altar lights or prayers for souls, the purpose seems to have been to set the properties up as religious trusts run by clerics on behalf of lay people who were restricted from the amount of land that they could transfer to the church by the statutes of Mortmain. These statutes, statutes restricted the um, uh, ownership by the church of lands and, and, and properties. With the establishment of a corporate entity in the form of a fraternity of St. Anne in 1430, license was given for the granting of lands and properties to 
ecclesiastical proprietorship, proprietorship in a legal fashion, but these formal bequests to the guild were definitely, I think, being foreshadowed in the earlier deeds. This transition in conveyancing practice reflected a change in fashion from individual chantry foundations to a confraternal community. So just to explain, a chantry was related to the doctrine of purgatory, a state in which the souls of the dead were purified before admittance to heaven. By endowing specially appointed chaplains to celebrate their obits or anniversaries of their deaths at designated altars, pious patrons were ensuring the chanting or praying of mass in perpetuity for their souls to speed their passage through purgatory. Chantries and their collective form, confraternities, became extremely widespread throughout medieval Europe, especially after the devastating plague of 1348, the Black Death, which carried off a significant proportion of the population. In the face of the manifest fragility of life, the survivors invested ever more heavily in spiritual assurance for the afterlife. Confraternities, uh, by extension then, were associations of lay men and women who bonded together to avail of the collective ministrations of uh, fraternity chaplains. These collegiate bodies normally reflected the popular veneration of local and international saints, with Marian devotion predominating. And this was the case in many parish churches in Irish towns in the 15th century, including St. Peter's in Drogheda, St. Mary's in RD, Holy Trinity in Cork, and St. Mary's in Goran, and so on. And what, what uh, happened in, in these cases, as in the case of St. Anne's in Dublin, was an, um, an evolved chantry system uh, which became more collegiate by the agglomeration of up to six or seven chantries. And usually these bodies were underpinned by royal charter, and headed by a master and wardens, and they were run by lay people who appointed the chantry chaplains to live in a collegiate form, and they also, the lay people, oversaw the property endowments. They were at once autonomous and yet dependent on the cooperation of the parochial clergy. So now, just to get on to the actual foundation of the Guild of St. Anne in 1430. In that year, a charter of Henry VI, King of England, granted to the founder members and their successors the right to establish a fraternity dedicated to St. Anne in a chapel that bore her name in St. Audion's Church. The founders included members of the Blakeney, Cusack, Barnwall and Stafford families, which were to have long associations with St. Anne's as brothers and sisters. Six priests or chaplains were to be appointed to the altars in the chapel in the name of the patroness, St. Anne, the Blessed Virgin, St. Catherine, St. Nicholas, St. Thomas and St. Clare, to celebrate Mass for the King and the founders and the souls of the faithful departed. While most of these saintly dedications were already a long-established feature of devotional life in the church, the cult of St. Anne, the mother of the Virgin, was uh, more recent and, and very popular in the 15th century. The Guild was constituted a corporation in its own right, with its own seal, and the right to conduct legal proceedings in its own name. 
the guild or fraternity of St. Anne, was permitted to accumulate lands and properties to the value of 100 marks per annum, and that's 66 pounds, 13 and 4 pence in the old sterling money, in annual income in pursuance of its remit, including the support of the priests. The legal foundations of St. Anne's Guild were thus soundly established, and its financial position was secured, but its purpose and raison d'etre became contentious when, during the Reformation, questions were raised about the religious principles upon which its mandate rested. But the 1430 Charter proved to be strong enough to withstand a series of vigorous challenges to the continuation of the Guild. So we get on then to talk about the um, church where the um, fraternity was based, St. Alduin's, uh, on Dublin's High Street. This was one of the oldest parish churches uh, in the city, founded by the early Anglo-Norman settlers. And the church came to manifest in the phases of its uh, structural growth and also its architectural adornments the evolution of a vibrant, a vibrant parish community here in the west of the city, um, eventually developing its own spiritual powerhouse, uh, the Fraternity of St. Anne. So you can see here that the church started off as a single cell uh, unit uh, or, or um, uh, um, building, uh, but eventually over the uh, couple of centuries, uh, down to the 15th century, it uh, expanded and with the addition of chancels. Um, the, the original part actually, uh, which is the, the uh, top left there in, in the illustration, uh, became St. Anne's Chapel in the 15th century, but there was a good deal of growth uh, between uh, its establishment initially and its uh, evolution then in its fully fledged form uh, by the 15th century, which was there on the bottom. And in that case, we have a tower. We have two naves, uh, the southern one uh, being St. Anne's Chapel. We have two chancels then, which were added in the, in the middle medieval period. And uh, one of these uh, was um, dubbed um, the um, Port Leicester Chapel because it was the location for the tomb of the um, Port Leicester or Fitz Eustace family. So it was a private chantry chapel, but it gave its name to this part of the um, chancel of St. Audience. You can see here it was in pretty dilapidated form in the 18th century with the washing hanging and all of that. Uh, it's still, that part of the chapel of the church is still unroofed. But as we'll see, the other southern part, uh, the southern nave or the St. Anne's Chapel was uh, re-roofed uh, pretty recently by the Office of Public Works. So therefore, the uh, building um, evolved and um, uh, responded to um, population growth and so on over the uh, couple of centuries down to the 15th century. All of the building work and internal decoration reflected the patronage of the prosperous parishioners, many of whom were members of the Guild of St. Anne and requested burial within the chapels. First, we look at the Port Leicester tomb, which is... Um, which used to be the centerpiece of the Port Leicester Chapel. Uh, that's the southern part of the chancel, uh, but it's now been removed to the tower. Uh, so it's quite a handsome Renaissance-style tomb uh, commemorating Roland Fitz Eustace and his wife, Margaret. Uh, but um, there were other features then uh, which suggest the um, 
uh, color and adornment of uh, the chapel and other parts of, of the church. Here, for example, uh, we have the remains of a large fresco of the Holy Trinity and possibly the figures of St. Anne and St. Mary that was discovered during restoration work in the chapel in the late 19th century in a recess which seemed to be the focal point of devotional life within the guild. So a photograph was taken at the time and the um, uh, picture, the, um, illustrate, the uh, fresco was sketched, uh, but this was all that remained in the first place, and by now the, um, uh, the remains of it have completely disappeared. Um, so we'll get on then to the membership of the Guild. Um, a definite uh, aid to the longevity of the institution was the social standing of many of the member families as patricians of Dublin during the 15th and subsequent centuries. According to Richard Stanyhurst, writing in 1577, the parish of St. Audwin's is accounted the best in Dublin, for that the greater number of the aldermen and the worships of the city are resident therein. This backbone of civic worthiness was an essential weapon in the armory of the guild as it faced later contention with the Anglican state and church authorities. An additional institutional prop for the St. Anne's fraternity was provided by the guild of bakers, many of whom were resident in nearby Cook Street, and it shared an overlapping membership. Many of the bakers were members of St. Anne's guild, uh, religious guild, and uh, it also shared the ecclesiastical space in St. Anne's Chapel with the religious confraternity. While some denizens of the parish of St. Audwin's who supported the guild made modest enough contributions for altar lights and minor repairs to the church, there are among the Halliday manuscripts several substantial bequests to the guild after 1430 that indeed brought its landed investment to a multiple of the original 100 marks. Among the wealthier benefactors was Sir Robert Dowdall, for example, who in 1478 left 100 marks to be invested at interest to pay for two priests to sing and pray in St. Anne's Chapel on his mind or anniversary day forever. Also notable was the generosity of the Blakeney family, uh, who were among the founders of the Guild in 1430, and who in 1534, donated to St. Anne's, their family mansion contiguous to the church, it's called Blakeney's Inns, and it became a rental property, but also more importantly, a collegiate residence for the chaplains in exchange for some lands in the Swords area of North County Dublin. So you can see Blakeney's Inn here to the east of the church. And indeed, um, a gallery was constructed in the 16th century to connect Blakeney's Inn with the church, uh, and a door then was opened in the north chancel to accommodate this um, corridor or connection to the College of St. Anne. So the benefits for the parish uh, for in, in having uh, a collegiate body such as St. Anne's uh, were considerable. Um, it conferred benefits in terms of church administration and personnel, as well as providing for the architectural and artistic adornment of the buildings through members' benefaction. 
Divine worship in St. Audience was enhanced through the supplement to the choir of at least half a dozen extra clerics. Moreover, the work of the supernumerary St. Anne's clergy aided the parish clergy in their busy round of duties, the chaplains carrying sacred vessels for the sacraments, visiting the sick and the poor, and possibly assisting in the local parish school. Through their involvement in routine guild business, lay people gained experience in ecclesiastical as well as secular affairs. Masters and wardens of the Guild of St. Anne served as church wardens, guild treasurers, um, who were uh, versed in the management of the property portfolio, acquired skills as parish proctors and assessors, and sisters and brothers meeting on their annual festival of St. Anne on the 26th of July were accustomed to electing new chaplains as well as guild officers. Thus, the overlapping concerns of the clergy and laity of St. Audion's and St. Anne's ensured the smooth running of the fraternity and the parish, their complementariety um, prompting Adrian Empey in his study of medieval lay religion to describe uh, the parish as the confraternity writ large. At the time of the Reformation, moreover, the influence of lay Catholics was strong enough to ensure the continuity of guild activity in parochial life. Above all, however, the Guild of Fraternity of St. Anne attracted men and women because of its uh, devotional life and sociability in which they participated as members. Some individuals and their families provided for elaborate comm commemorations such as extra-ecclesial bell-ringing ceremonies on their anniversaries, but all deceased members shared collectively in the votive masses that were offered at the altars by the guild chaplains on their anniversaries. There was a roll of obits comprising the dates of death of those who had died, as members of the confraternity and who were to be remembered on their anniversaries. Funerals of deceased brothers and sisters were marked with particular solemnity. The guild chapel was draped in black and the sisters and brothers, perhaps, perhaps dressed in their livery, would have been on hand uh, with coloured tapers and torches. The office of the dead was said or sung by the guild chaplains who celebrated the Requiem Mass. Burials within the Guild Chapel were becoming popular in the 15th century rather than uh, mere interment in, in the um, church, uh, churchyard or, or church cemetery. Um, here we have an example of um, the monument of the Malone family in St. Anne's Guild uh, Chapel. Um, and um, Richard Codd, a baker, for example, requested interment be beneath the ground sill of the chapel of St. Anne in St. Audience Church in his will of 1438. Burial fees were paid to the works of the church. Many testators made provision of her small doles to the poor at their funerals. Alexander Beswick, for example, requesting that eight marks worth of bread be distributed to the poor at the time of his burial. Members celebrated the feast day of St. Anne, the patroness of the guild, on the 26th of uh, July with particular fervour. Public pageantry lent excitement and colour to the day and also helped to reinforce group identity. The guild chapel was decorated with damask hangings and lit by an abundance of candles 
Um, Vespers were sung in the chapel with all of the members present, and Mass on on the following day, uh, following the vigil, uh, was the centerpiece of the celebration. Members were expected to attend in their liveries, their gowns and hoods, and brass standards held the guild banner with its insignia in place. Outside the church, the guild provided popular spectacle in the form of a procession headed by the standard bearers, with the members arrayed in their finery and ordered according to rank and seniority, the most important being the current master and two wardens. After the religious ceremonies, the company would have uh, retired to a favourite tavern for the banquet, which was held to mark the patron's feast, as well as a selection of meats, delicacies such as cakes and comfits were savoured with drinks including white wine, claret, ale and sack. In the 1530s, by which time the Guild of St. Anne has established, had established itself as an integral part of religious and social life in St. Audience, the sequence of events that served to shatter the unity of the parish began with the Reformation under King Henry VIII. Belief in purgatory, which was really the Guild's raison d'etre, was rejected by the official Protestant orthodoxy, which came to shape the state church reformation. In spite of proposals for its suppression, though, in line with that of the chantries in England and Wales in the mid-shooter period, the Guild of St. Anne and other Irish religious guilds and confraternities managed to survive. Wealthy parishioners continued their munificence towards the Guild, arranging in their wills for the keeping of their obits. Officers of the Guild uh, were continually... um, elected uh, to serve as aldermen on the city corporation and as members of the guild merchant. Many leading families continued to arrange for their burials within the guild chapel and for the erection of elaborate funerary sculpture to mark their places of interment. Chaplains continued to be appointed regularly. The lands and houses in the possession of the fraternity continued to be rented out for annual fees amassing for the institution a healthy fund for charitable works. As example, uh, for example, in the 1590s, um, funds being um, voted for the repair of the church, the restoration of the church tower, and the relief of poverty during the Nine Years' War. As divisions between Catholics and Protestants widened in St. Audion's in the early 17th century, the officers and members of the Guild took elaborate measures to preserve the integrity of corporate life. A newfound urgency about the preservation of records and the securing of its muniments is to be seen in another of the Halliday manuscripts, which isn't on display here, but it's an important document, Manuscript 12, D1. It's called The Account Book of St. Anne's Guild, 1584-1817. Part of the strategy was to hire legal counsel to defend the Charter of 1430, when the state government brought proceedings against its continuing existence in uh, 1611. As St. Audion's Church was now appropriated for Anglican services, Catholic worship was transferred to the College of St. Anne, that's the old Blakeney's Inns, which became the principal mass house of the parish. In respect of the Guild's extensive property book, rents and leases were carefully accounted for. 
Among the documents found uh, in the Gill's muniments in a later discovery process was a copy of a papal bull of 1569, which enjoined all Catholic fraternities to rent properties to Catholics only. And certainly this exhortation appears to have been followed in the main in succeeding decades, though there were still Protestant renters of property. Indeed, um, some members, Protestant members of the guild uh, belonging to old civic families such as Usher and Ball continued their membership and um, even uh, by times were elected to the mastership, um, particularly um, when the government uh, was putting pressure on Catholics and Catholic institutions. It helped to have a Protestant face to front the guild in negotiations or in legal proceedings. So, for example, Alderman Robert Ball, a Protestant, was elected as master on a few occasions um, in order to present this acceptable face to the authorities. In the 1630s, there occurred the most serious threat to the future of St. Anne's Guild, as a concerted effort was made by the church and state authorities to shape the corporation to the ends of the Church of Ireland. Suspicions were rife that the Guild was devoting its considerable revenues to the mission of Catholic revival in Dublin, and specifically the supporting of a priest and a schoolteacher in St. Audion's parish. Such mistrust was exacerbated by the action of the members in granting away fee farms or freeholds of the guild's houses and properties to selected Catholic tenants in the 1620s. Reverend Thomas Lowe, the rector or prebendary of St. Audouin's, complained about the guild's secretive pattern of dispersal of funds. He claimed that St. Anne's Guild had swallowed up all the church means, which should be for the minister and reparation of the church, the church itself being in disrepair at the time. This complaint, when brought to the Anglican Archbishop of Dublin, elicited a full-scale investigation of the affairs of the Guild at the Council Board in the mid-1630s. It was part of an orchestrated campaign of Lord Deputy Thomas Wentworth and his ecclesiastical ally, John Bramhall, the Bishop of Derry, for the endowment of the Church of Ireland, the re-endowment rather of the Church of Ireland, through the recovery of concealed or misappropriated livings or revenues. The Commission found that the value of the Guild's investments was well over £800 at that time, only a small portion of which was um, given over to the parish church and clergy. Bishop Bramhall ordered that the fee farms be rescinded and a large proportion of the revenues from the rentals be given to the prebendary of St. Audience and other parish clergy, as well as up to 10 vicars choral of Christ Church Cathedral. Guild membership was to be um, swamped by 30 newcomers, all of them Protestant luminaries, bishops and civic dignitaries who would constitute a majority of the guild. Now, all of these arrangements, which were in the manner of kind of a an attempted coup, uh, failed, as did the arrangements for the reform of the guild's rental book and the endowment of the Christchurch personnel, mainly because of the religious upheavals from 1640 onwards. Indeed, among the reasons posited at the time for Wentworth's downfall was his interference in the affairs of St. Anne's fraternity, which became symbolic of resistance to the centralizing of government and the undermining of old institutions. The fraternity continued on, however, as a parish institution with a confessionally mixed membership, 
though from 1643 onwards, with the exception of a few years in the late 1680s, the masters of the fraternity of St. Anne were Protestant, usually prominent older men. These substantial figures, merchants and so on, managed the considerable financial resources of the fraternity, which arose from its rent roll, and they played a full part in supervising the fraternity's charitable role, when necessary, defended its chartered privileges in the face of parochial claims. The prebendary of St. Audouin's actually sat in on meetings of the fraternity during the 1650s, 60s and 70s. Through their continuing participation in the fraternity of St. Anne, the Catholic community retained a corporate presence in parish and municipality, notwithstanding the ecclesiastical and political instability of the mid to later 17th century. Among the membership were those from long-established civic families who traditionally had ties to the fraternity, including the Purcells, Kennedys, Plunkets, Chamberlains, Barnwalls, uh, most of whom had remained Catholic. Women members related to former brothers or sisters were themselves also uh, members among the petitioners to the fraternity for charitable relief. As evident in the White Book of St. Anne's Guild, which is on display, 1655 to 77, the fraternity dealt on an individual basis with petitions from distressed and infirm members of respectable families with confraternal ties who had fallen on hard times. Grants were sought from the funds on the general grounds of the pious uses for which it was suggested the institution had been founded. Many widows with children would request a charity on account of their penury, rental arrears, or poor living conditions. Some, such as Mary Cooper, a regular petitioner who had three young children, and Anne Ball, were themselves members of the fraternity, being careful to stress their descent from formerly ascendant civic families. Sums ranging from five pounds to 20 shillings were granted as charitable offerings, as well as gifts of coal and forgiveness of rent arrears. Particularly pitiable was the plight of elderly citizens such as Mary Golding, née Luttrell, aged 80 years, a daughter of old Thomas Luttrell, whose fidelity to the crown, generosity and public spirit were known to the best of the kingdom and who had become destitute as a result of the 1641 rebellion. Scions of once proud and affluent families that had played a leading public role included Robert Plunkett, Lord of Rathmore, a Catholic brother of St. Anne's of over 40 years standing in 1658, uh, who had had his estate sequestered as a result of the rebellion of the 1640s and was imprisoned for debt in the Marshalsea prison. And Edward Jans, grandson of the late Alderman Edward Jans, formerly a master of the fraternity, who had been forced to go to sea after the rebellion and was being held by pirates for a ransom of 400 crowns. These petitioners were afforded assistance from the Guild on the basis of familial and fraternal claims on its resources, apparently without discrimination as to religious creed or parish residency, unlike the parochial system of poor relief. In thus alleviating the plight of the poor, the fraternity maintained the dignity and pride of former prominent families, acting as a relief, a relief agency rather, across confessional lines. 
1679, a new prebendary of St. Audience, John Finglas, initiated legal proceedings in the Court of Chancery for the abolition of the fraternity on the basis of its chartered status as a chantry college and the vexed question of the applicability of its resources to parish purposes. He was particularly exercised, of course, by the Gill's decision to end the payment of his annual stipend. The campaign, which ultimately failed, destabilized relations within the Guild of St. Anne and the parish of St. Audion, as did the upheavals of the later 1680s. A, a Catholic majority briefly held sway in St. Anne's fraternity under King James II from 1687 to 1690 under the leadership of the master Michael Chamberlain. During that time, the newly designated parish priest of St. Audouin's and five other Catholic clergy, including Michael Moore, the new provost of Trinity College, were appointed to the six chantry chaplaincies in accordance with the foundation charter of 1430, each to celebrate mass every day and to be paid an annual stipend from the fraternity. After 1690, it appears that Catholics were excluded from the officerships within the guild. And in 1692, a meeting of the fraternity attended only by the Protestant members vacated, disannulled and made void the reversion to a devotional role for St. Anne's. This short-lived Catholic resurgence was a prelude, prelude to a concerted effort in the mid-1690s to shut down the guild under a proposed act to dissolve Irish chantries 150 years after its English equivalent. Legal arguments about the purpose of the guild's endowment found their way into print, as in this example of 1690. But the fraternity of St. Anne continued in existence during the 18th century under Protestant leadership, though including among its membership for a number of years a coterie of Catholic men and women. It resumed its regular business of managing the charity properties and rentals, and also the granting of suits for the alleviation of distress. Among those accommodated on several occasions were Elizabeth Cooper, daughter of a long-lived sister of the fraternity that we mentioned, Mary, and also Michael Chamberlain, a former master, whose namesake uh, had been also had been master a hundred years previously. He was helped with regular donations of up to twenty pounds as a brother of the fraternity, who, by the misfortunes of the late times, is much reduced to great poverty. Thus, confraternal bonds based on shared brotherhood and sisterhood over several generations continued to hold fast in the early 1700s in respect of the relief of the known poor. The Guild survived as a local charitable institution, continuing to meet annually on St. Anne's Day for the members' banquet, either at the Rose in Dame Street or the Custom House Coffee House, and voting an annual grant of £40 from its funds to the Blue Coat School for Boys in Dublin. Eventually, in the reforms of the early 19th century, which saw the abolition of old corporations and guilds, St. Anne's finally succumbed to le legal extinction. What of the physical structures and artefacts of the guild? The chapel of St. Anne was in disrepair in the late 16th century, though burials of parishioners continued to take place there for several decades. As the church was eventually consolidated within the north nave, 
so it was back to a one single kind of cell um, building. Um, the chancels, including the Port Leicester Chapel and the South Nave, that's the Chapel of St. Anne's, became derelict and roofless in the 18th century. The College of St. Anne, which was Blakeney's Inns, seems to have been abandoned by the late 17th century. It was during a restoration scheme in the 1680s that the fresco of the Trinity, St. Anne and the Virgin was discovered, but the re-roofing of the Chapel of St. Anne was not completed until the programme of restoration undertaken by the OPW in the 1990s. In conjunction with these works, a major archaeological and architectural investigation took place under the supervision of Mary McMahon, and the report was published in 2006. More recently, the vestry records of the parish of St. Audouin, 1636 to 1702, were edited for publication by Mairead Nivirakou. The records of the guild were organized and catalogued by one James Goddard, the energetic clerk of St. Anne's in the 1770s. And these went to form the manuscript collections in Dublin City Archives and through the beneficence of Charles Halliday here in the Academy. So to conclude, the Halliday charitable bequest of the St. Anne's papers to the Academy affords us an intriguing perspective on the social and religious history of Dublin. The extent of the guild's resources are manifested in the legal property deeds, which in themselves are of great interest, but the added value is conferred in the evidence of the White Book and other documents, because these show the part played by the religious corporation in the social and spiritual lives of the members and the recipients of its alms. An analysis of the Guild's struggle to continue in the changed circumstances of the post-Reformation period encapsulates many aspects of the clash between traditional communal institutions and centralizing government in state and church. In this story of resilience and adaptability on the part of the brothers and sisters, it's notable that affiliation to St. Anne's Guild transcended divisions between Catholic and Protestant and instead fostered a spirit of civic welfare and solidarity. It was said sceptically at a time of contention over its continuing warrant that the guild hath a charm to have the value of their rents and profits returned within their compass of 100 marks, um, despite the fact that the real value of the endowment was over 1,000 pounds at the time. But in reality, I think, the charm or secret of the longevity of the Guild of St. Anne lies in the generous impulses of generations of Dubliners, a notable exemplar of which we are celebrating here with the current exhibition on Charles Halliday. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.